Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm with Andre Martianov. Andre is an expert on Russian military and naval affairs. He was born in Baku, USSR, in 1963 and graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy and has served as an officer on the ships and held a staff position at the Soviet Coast Guard up until the early 1990s. He's also the author of several books, which include The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, and Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. How's your day been, Andre? I'm fine, thank you. Okay, before we talk about the current Russo-Ukrainian conflict, which is all over the news, Let's try to zoom out a bit and look at like the broader history of Russia's like relationships with the West, because I specifically want to delve into how Russia's like foreign policy objectives have generally clashed with the West since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And how would you describe Russia's foreign policy grand strategy since the Soviet Union dissolved? Well, we have to understand that immediately after the Soviet collapse, what Russia got in terms of foreign policy, so to speak, was nothing more than pro-Western shills, such as former Minister of the Foreign Affairs Andrei Kozarev, who safely resides now in Florida, and the guy whose definition of Russian foreign policy doctrine was that Russia doesn't have national interests. Let United States lead. So, and of course, we know where it all ended up with gang rape of Yugoslavia in 1999. And after even 9-11, where Russia literally extended the hand of help to the United States in an unprecedented show of support, after three, four years, it became clear that nothing really works with the combined West. And once Obama got into power, that's where it all started to unfold big time. And it was clear that the United States was in the existential struggle with Russia. And basically, after Vladimir Putin's Munich speech in 2007, which was the watershed moment, actually, in global politics, it's just that at that time, living in delusion and misinformed U.S. and Western politicians didn't take it too seriously. Well, now they take it seriously. And what we have right now, it's the existential struggle between Russia and emerging not emerging, it's already emerged, multipolar world, but it's also between emerging massive geopolitical entity of Eurasia and basically declining West. And that's what we see today. And Ukraine situation is just one of many hotspots, so to speak, which denote this tectonic shift in the global power balance. Yeah, I'd like to go back to the NATO expansion point because you always hear people in the West, especially these mouthpieces and the corporate media say that this is strictly a defensive alliance and any of its efforts to expand its reach are benign in nature. What would you say was the critical moment in history where Russia's foreign policy class realized that NATO was no longer a defensive alliance and actually presented a threat to Russia's national interest? Uh, Yugoslavia. It was Yugoslavia, 1999. That's where it all started. And Yugoslavia, or gang rape of Yugoslavia by NATO, 
and on the very much false premises, it was the starting point of this reorientation, if you wish, or shift, which of course took a little bit of time. But one of the reasons why Yeltsin kind of suddenly resigned, you know, with his famous, I'm tired, you know, I cannot do anything. Obviously, we will uh, learn the real story behind that probably in 20 or 30 years. But it is obvious that he was forced out of power. And then, of course, the removal of the radically pro-Western, pro-globalist elements started in Russia, which we see today. So let's fast forward a bit to the 2014 Maidan incident. And again, you had the prevailing narrative in the West that the Ukrainian government of Viktor Yanukovych was corrupt, authoritarian, and beholden to Moscow. And then on the other side, you had the Maidan protesters and the political figures who claimed to represent them as courageous freedom fighters who were absolutely craving Western-style freedoms and wanted to break free from Russia. What is wrong with this commonly held perception in the West? First, the thing that Yanukovych was beholden to Moscow is absolutely false narrative. The guy was actually trying to sell himself, you know, to any site which will pay more. And there was a huge discussion for many years in Russia that Russia somehow has to kind of, you know, participate in the controlling and upbringing of the new generations of Ukrainians, which Russia didn't do, and thank God it didn't. But the point is that, obviously, Yanukovych, for all his corruption, he was democratically elected president, you know, legitimately. And, of course, Maidan, which overthrew him, which was nothing more than bloody coup, you know, perpetrated by, including by the NATO special services, and everybody remembers Vicky Nuland's, you know, F-U-E-U. So it's like, yeah, the fact that Western media and Western, so to speak, establishment narrative mongers are stooping so low as to come up with the absolute fantasies and fiction there just shows you that you cannot communicate with these people. And of course, yeah, it was a bloody coup d'etat and it was the third Maidan. Evidently, Ukrainians have issues. They cannot elect anybody. No, I mean, they can elect, but like in literally half a year, they become disillusioned and you start again, you know, just going bananas and creating all kinds of troubles. And that's what brought Ukraine to today's situation. And in this particular case, Practically everything those narrative mongers say, it's really PR field primarily. You know, it's about narrative. It's about media. It's about story. Reality was, of course, that Russians also were pretty, really well researched, so to speak, and reconned issue that NATO wanted also to take Sevastopol away from Russian influence. It is akin to Russians coming and saying that, okay, we'll take San Diego with all naval, you know, bases there and you know, things of this nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see how the United States will react, you know. Apart from the fact that the United States didn't really shed a drop of blood for San Diego, Russians literally poured blood over Sevastopol and Crimean land so much that it's, for just average Americans, it's sometimes incomprehensible what kind of sacrifices have been made there. So it's, yeah, that's pretty much the only analogy I can come up with, you know, so... One point uh, that you mentioned about Yanukovych, I find interesting because it looks like he was running a multi-vector foreign policy of sorts. Is that is that a similar case to that of uh, Lukashenko in Belarus as well? Yeah, it certainly was. 
It certainly was. And that's why Russians have this funny, yeah, bohata vector name, that which means literally rich in vectors, you know. So it's obviously, you know, sarcastic term. But yeah, that's what Lukashenko was also doing until obviously uh, he was explained by Putin that uh, if you want to leave, it's not like we will come for you. No, we will not come for you. They will come for you, you know. And evidently, uh, some message finally trickled down to, you know, Mr. Lukashenko, and he's kind of on the more cautious side now, you know. But what can I say? The uh, limitrophs, you know, and those small uh, states, that's how they always behave. They always look for their uh, bigger master, bigger, better master, you know, so to speak. Lukashenko wanted to stay in power, so, and, uh, you know, the West was already kind of honing their, you know, swords and knives for him. He understood that. He's a pretty sensitive man in this respect. And would you say that that same logic would apply to, say, the Central Asian republics like Kazakhstan as well, that they've practiced that multi-vector approach? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That's what is this all about. It's always about selling yourself, uh, you know, uh, finding the better price for yourself. And again, it's uh, their constant. It's their, uh, so to speak, uh, axiom of the geopolitics. You know, small states, they look for a bigger, better master, period. And why the United States was able to project this uh, uh, image, very false image, by the way, of the omnipotent and, you know, all-powerful nation, uh, there was no doubt that the vectors were, so to speak, and force of gravity, so to speak, was on the side of the United States. Suddenly things begin to change. They started to change in 2008, once the uh, Russian army basically demolished a Georgian army within 72 hours. Well, it was a five-day war, but, you know, within three days it was all over pretty much, you know. And uh, that's when uh, things begin to dawn on, uh, you know, in the West that, hey, we have the situation of actual multipolarity and actually what Putin promised in, you know, his uh, Munich speech. And as you might understand, Russia emerging as the separate uh, power pole, she also creates her, inevitably uh, creates her uh, gravity zone. Part of this gravity zone, of course, uh, uh, is the former Soviet Union. Not because Russia wants the empire. Russia doesn't want the empire, actually. But because uh, economically uh, and historically, they were connected for centuries. Forget about, like, you know, Soviet times. There was a Russian empire, and much of it is still, many of them gravitate towards Russia, no matter what they say. Yeah, that all makes sense. There, It's kind of like reaching, like, a natural geopolitical equilibrium because the 90s unipolarity was, like, a weird aberration in geopolitical history. And when Russia reemerged, it was naturally going to exert some type of influence, whether it's like direct military or geoeconomic um, around its like so-called like near abroad. I think that's like, to me, uh, this is like nothing new or like revolutionary in geopolitics. But for people like in DC who are just completely zonked out on the unipolar moment, they, they're just having fits and can't sleep at night at the prospect of a multipolar world. Well, uh, part of it is first, uh, most of them, not all, but most of them are badly educated. We have to uh, give a cognizance, cognizance to the fact of which I write nonstop for many years. Uh, basically, uh, U.S. Uh, education in terms of the governance and in terms of producing uh, statesmen is a bunk. It's basically broken 
It's extremely low academic level. It's really bad in terms of history. It's bad in terms of military science and all that. And what you have, you have this generation of people who grew up with U.S. Army on coalition beating the crap out of the third-rate Saddam's army, which was spun into the, one of the biggest uh, forces in the world, which was, of course, done for narrative. And they believe that, oh, okay, here's the new world order, which uh, Bush Sr. actually proclaimed. The problem was, of course... It was, again, an aberration, especially the fact that the Soviet Union actually gave their, uh, Gorbachev gave their basically a, a, a goal for this operation against Iraq. And uh, that kind of pre- prevailing narrative, g- blown out of proportions, actually, a proportion, uh, was uh, um, dominant for the last, uh, for 90s and early 2000s. And uh, then, of course, again, as I stated, the things started to change. And of course, now what we have militarily, United States, I mean, it's completely militarily discredited, despite the fact of its gigantic uh, 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 military budget. But don't forget, uh, United States lost its all wars, you know, and uh, how, 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 how do you go about it? You know, you have to prove in bank, they ask you for what? For credit history, if you want to get a loan, right? Correct. <laughs> so, well, uh, I mean... Uh, what matters in geopolitics? Anybody who tells you about that iPhones and uh, uh, Starbucks coffee matters in geopolitics, they better, you know, check themselves into their, you know, uh, you know, mental cleaning. Because <laughs> only two things which matter in real geopolitics. It's the economy, real economy, ability to produce, and military power, period. And geography as the background, uh, as McKinder uh, kind of conceived it, and even he kind of admitted that, A, in the end, you know what, it's not just geography, it's people, you know, who decide their fate, you know. And when you look at it from this framework, not from through Wall Street eyes, suddenly the picture changes dramatically. People still don't understand. Even when being basically uh, destroyed economically and uh, in every other social, culturally, you know, uh, in 1990s, Russia could still wipe the United States off the map in 30 in 30 minutes because it was the second largest <laughs> nuclear arsenal in the world and it was actually maintained. So, but you know, that's very difficult sometimes to explain to people who have degree in uh, I don't know public relations or uh, political science and they have no clue about technologies which really run and industries which really are real impetus behind the formation of the geopolitical reality. It's impossible, you know. It's impossible to explain to economists what guidance system is. You know, it's like what targeting is, how you produce tanks or how you produce aircraft, what requires to you know to get it. Uh, it's sometimes impossible, and that's what the majority of people in the CR they don't they they have no clue, and of course they don't know Russia. Russian field or Russia study field in the West is a disaster. It's a wasteland. Yeah, definitely agreed. Especially on like the media front, like I do not trust any type of coverage of Russia from like the corporate press. It's almost tabloid material about whether Putin's gonna like die like in two days or. If like he was like dressed up the wrong way at a meeting or whatever, it's just like this is like stuff you would find like in like a pharmacy store in the U.S. Man, this is not real <laughs> analysis, and it's really a microcosm of how dysfunctional U.S. politics is has already become, and it's going to probably get a lot worse and not better anytime soon. 
Yeah, I wrote about it in my third book. And, you know, the title of it is pretty dramatic, actually, but that's what we're observing right now. And, and again, yeah, I agree. U.S. Ma- uh, mainstream media and most, a lot of so-called independent media are tabloids. And again, uh, we literally ran into this situation when what used to be the respectable profession of journalist on, you know, or political observer and things like that, uh, the world became so complex. It became so complex technologically, you know, science-wise, that suddenly those expertise, so to speak, it's not enough. Apart from the fact that from the malice and being narrative mongers, you know, and doing the uh, and following political agendas, you put it together and you have a perfect storm of what we observe today. Indeed, yeah, it's tabloid. The American policy on the Hill also, you know, and the Capitol Hill, it's also tabloid foreign policy. It's all for PR. Nothing being done, nothing being, you know, fixed in the situation when basically the country is imploding, I mean, economically. But, hey, we have this whole Congress, U.S. Congress, you know, Senate and, uh, you know, uh, House of Representatives. And evidently, they're not bothering themselves much with the actual activity of helping country to do, you know, deal with the situation. So there you go. Yeah, let's talk about like the the main course being the current conflict in Ukraine, because people are going to be debating this for years on what ultimately motivated Russia to finally pull the trigger on Ukraine. And what would you say in your view was like the straw that broke the camel's back that prompted Russia to finally conduct its military operation in Ukraine? Two things. Uh, Recon about the major offensive by the uh, Ukrainian forces which was supposed to happen in the early March of this year. So the invasion was forestalling it. And of course, Russia would never uh, give up uh, LDNR or Donbass republics. And secondly, the statements by Zelensky about uh, uh, nuclear ambitions of Ukraine. And that's two major factors. And that was enough to kind of force Russia to do what she did. Could you give some background to the the breakaway provinces in uh, eastern Ukraine, because a lot of people don't realize that there was like a war within a war taking place in that area. And could you give like some context to that? Because I think it's really important to understand that if we want to really grasp like the overall background of the present conflict. Well, um, basically what happened in 2013, 2014 earlier, and we already touched upon it a little bit, it was the coup, basically, bloody coup in the country which culturally is very diverse. And Ukraine is a, a two different countries, essentially. Well, actually, it's three different countries. It's the Western Ukraine, which is very anti-Russian, Russophobic in the extreme. You have the Central Ukraine, which is actually historical Ukraine. And of course, you have Eastern Ukraine with a huge number of Russophone population and many people who are actually Russians by culture. And so you have basically somewhat Yugoslavia similar crisis there, if you wish to uh, use any analogy for people who do not have the deeper knowledge of the uh, uh, issue. I see. Now, let's go to the military performance aspect, because this is where also you're seeing a lot of tabloid tier analysis of the situation. How is Russia's special military operation going at the present? And we're talking on June 3rd, just for some reference. Oh, it's uh, going actually quite fine. And do not forget, the bulk, not bulk, but at least uh, 
significant share of the forces which fight there on the ground, which are, so to speak, the infantry forces. Still, largely, those uh, militias, which are now basically cadre uh, armies or small you know, uh, armed forces of Lugansk and Donetsk republics. So it's not just uh, that Russian troops. Uh, Russia uses there about probably, uh, I would say, 100,000 of their uh, troops altogether, which is a small portion of Russian armed forces. And it proceeds just fine, especially considering the fact that, uh, first, even uh, Zelensky and even Ukrainian propaganda has to admit now that basically the losses of the Ukrainian forces are catastrophic, basically. And you have the brigades, which are reduced to one company, and you have the companies where out of uh, 120 people, they have about 30 left. So, and the whole idea is demilitarization. And the only reason Russians didn't go into this blitzkrieg, you know, offensive or repeating their operation Bagration in 1944, which destroyed basically the army group center of Wehrmacht, you know, is because it's the fact which Western press, with the exception of few articles here and there, including even from New York Times, the fact that armed forces of Ukraine, and especially its large Nazi element in them, they use civilian population as human shield, and you literally have to peel them off. And that is why you have to constantly slow down, leave those humanitarian corridors, try to negotiate, try to do whatever you can to save as many civilians as you can. And you can observe this situation or or know this situation repeating itself over and over again for the last three months. And you could see that in Mariupol, where it took an immense effort to basically evacuate. I believe by the time uh, the Azov style uh, was actually surrendering, there was more than 160,000 people of Mariupol, you know, evacuated. But guess what? Now it continues elsewhere. They use schools. And I mean, it's nothing wrong per se if to use school in defense of the city, you know? It's wrong when you have the kindergarten or school used as the, uh, uh, you know, uh, reinforced point of firing position, and you keep those people, including children, in there as the human shield. So there you go. And you have to deal with this. Yeah, that's some pretty wild stuff. And what I am rather curious about is the future of Ukraine's territorial integrity after this conflict, because what do you think will be the strategy Russia will be using to secure the peace after this incursion? Will it partition, neutralize, or annex parts of Ukraine? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, uh, that's the uh, tough one. First, let's, be, uh, let's face the reality, and let's say what is obvious now. Russia will uh, basically... Uh, first, we have, you have to understand, Lugansk and Donetsk Republic, they are already de facto Russia, you know? So they already know that they will become a Russia. They will. Uh, they want it. They ha- held the referendum. The next one, which wants to join Russia unequivocally, is the Kherson region. And then, of course, you have the land bridge, which is being, so to speak, built, quote unquote. It's Nikolaev and Odessa regions. Once they are taken, which they will be taken, uh, you have the land bridge to Transnistria. This is the, so to speak, program minimum. 
But many people, and this is the Russian discussion right now, uh, discussion in Russia right now, what do we do with the ramp which is left from Ukraine? Will Russia allow Poland to get its uh, former historical lands? Probably Russia will. We don't know the mechanism of how it's going to look. And Mr. Patrushev already stated uh, two days ago that Poland already is doing there some encroachments, so to speak, to obtain, you know, get back its traditional, you know, Lemberg, Lwów, those Western Ukrainian territories. But what are you going to do with the ramp which will be left? And again, there is a school of thought says, yeah, we have to go and just basically, you know, liberate them and reconstitute Ukraine as something completely different. Others say, yeah, we have to go till the end and completely denazify it and Ukraine will cease to exist. So one way or another, we are, uh, the Ukraine, as we know, doesn't exist anymore anyhow. You know, but Mr. Kissinger, who about a week ago told Ukrainians that you better start, you know, surrendering and things like that. I think so we're really even past this point. It's not about preserving something. It depends on how Russia uh, views if Ukraine even, you know, should exist. And only people like Putin and Lavrov and Russian general staff know that. What's going to be next? I don't. (laughs) I can only speculate. So that's some pretty wild stuff. So you don't think there will be like a West Ukraine that's like a dependency of like the EU or some other like Western supranational bloc that will just be like subsidizing it or? Well, no, I think so. Poland will get its desire granted and she will get the Western Ukraine, at least large parts of it. Obviously, don't forget Bukovina, which is a Romanian, and don't forget those enclaves of Hungarians in the Western Ukraine. It's pretty much set. But again, there is a school of thought in Russia which says now we still have to go back to Lvov and clear that whole, you know, uh, abscess there. But others say, no, just leave it to Poland, you know, and but still just destroy the rest of it, you know, so, and reconstitute it as some independent states, you know, and who knows? It's very difficult to say. But what is absolutely clear that, yeah, even if Ukraine exists after that as some kind of rump state, you know, which will be completely demilitarized, probably will have some military police and, you know, things of this nature, and will be denazified thoroughly, it will never have the access to the Black Sea, and it will be significantly smaller, let's put it this way. That's what I think is in store, but again, do not forget, situation changes daily, and we'll see Russia still have to consider that uh, she needs to leave there some face-saving out for the United States because basically the United States never expected that its best proxy ever in the history of the United States will have its, you know, butt handed to it, you know, in this cruel way. So it is what it is. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, but, um, that's basically a fait accompli. I, I, yeah, I don't see the original borders of Ukraine staying the same, that's for sure. Let's move on to some aspects of Russian foreign policy that have interested me for some time. And we're seeing like a pretty broad-based pivot to Asia, not just like the U.S.'s pivot to Asia, but you're also seeing Russia as well bolster ties with several countries, specifically Iran, which I find pretty intriguing because for history buffs here, We'll probably pick up on the fact that Russia and Iran have historically been at loggerheads with each other, as you can see with the 
five like total wars that they've they fought from like the mid 17th century up until the first half of the 19th century, the Russo-Persian Wars, if you will. And Tsarist Russia got the upper hand in a lot of those conflicts whenever it was said and done. And even like the Soviet Union teamed up with the British to depose Reza Shah Pahlavi, who was suspected of being too close to the Axis powers. And despite these tensions, mind you, it seems that Russia and, and Iran now have largely patched up those animosities. And you can see it with regards to their opposition to unilateral sanctions and increased defense ties. What do you think explains this rapprochement between Iran and Russia? Oh, very simple. First one, we have to go back and remember 1920 and 1940 treaties between Russia, Soviet Union, and Iran. And this was basically the judicial status of the Caspian Sea, which is enormously rich in all kinds of resources, not least gas and oil. And uh, in this particular respect, uh, Iran and uh, Russia, historical Russia and Soviet Union, they had they worked it out just just well. And uh, they are, it's obvious, geographically, Iran and Russia are neighbors. So you, as is always the case with the neighbors, you either you know have a very nasty people living next to you, or you indeed begin to build normal neighborly relations. And eventually, the common sense and you know cooler heads prevailed. And as you can see yourself now, uh, well, some people call it even Russian-Iranian alliance. It's not alliance, obviously, but there is no doubt that Iran is an important link. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, for Russia to exit to the uh, Indian Ocean. And not only that, it's the issue of the um, uh, Arab states and uh, pivotal role geographically and economically around place in the region. So uh, it's only natural for Russia and Iran to have some kind of the cooperation. And evidently, it's going to be growing. It's already growing. And then you have the uh, Azerbaijan actually packed in between Russia and Iran, you know. And uh, that's another interesting thing, which you many people didn't notice this, but Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, before the Russian invasion into Ukraine, he was in Moscow. And Moscow and Azerbaijan issued, both Vladimir Putin and Ilham Aliyev, they issued the, what is called a strategic declaration about being de facto allies. Okay, it was a very significant document, as a matter of fact. So Russia is consolidating, so to speak, this area, which is very important. And don't forget also that there was a big, big signing of the investment agreement between uh, China and Iran, and it was almost half a trillion, four hundred billion dollars worth, gigantic treaty. But they also created some degree of the resentment on the Iranian part especially the Iranian political elite, they are proud people. Do not forget, they have a claim to great ancient culture, you know, the times of pre-Islamic times, you know, Persepolis, you know, great Persian empire. So they are very, quite different people, you know, and they are very proud people. And there was a great degree of resentment, albeit they still signed it and agreed that it works in favor of Iran with this agreement, $400 billion investment agreement between Iran and China. And now Russia is viewed as set to a degree of this Chinese getting hold of very many Iranian resources and assets. So 
it's very interesting dynamics there, obviously. But Iran is a key player. And of course, now when you recall that basically it was General Soleimani assassinated by the United States who was in Moscow and convinced Moscow to interfere in Syria in 2015. And there was a great deal of the military cooperation between Russians, still is, between Russians and Iranians, both under direct Iranian involvement or under the auspices of the Hezbollah, which is, of course, the pro-Iranian organization. So we have this very interesting dynamics, but it is clear that suddenly we have to recognize that Iran is becoming the part of this larger Eurasian game. And economically, it is still a very significant country. And that's pretty much the situation. And Iran is a valuable, valuable member of the emerging military, political, economic bloc in Eurasia. Would you say as well that Iran plays like a pretty valuable role for Russia in terms of balancing out transnational Sunni Islamists in the area because of like the sectarian nature of conflict in the Middle East and also even in a lot of like Central Asia and the Caucasus, like that having Iran on like Russia's side on those issues helps a lot in dealing with extremism? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It goes without saying. Great point you make. Although primarily, majority of the Russians, uh, Russian Muslims, they are Sunni. But again, it depends on the madhab, the judicial school of the Islam. And basically, the Tatars, for example, or Bashkirs, they are very well integrated into Russian society, you know, and they are not, there are some radicals, obviously. But Caucasus is obviously a little bit different story, and we all remember how bad it was in the 1990s, including Chechnya wars. But Iran was, in this case, in 1990s, taking basically Russian side. And Russians always remember with great, you know, being grateful for that help. So, and of course, don't forget that also Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan, which is a key player, it's a key country in the region. It's actually Shiite. Yes. Azeris are Shiites, and they are also proud of to preserving their also Zoroastrian past because they were Zoroastrians before their Islamization. And Azeri diaspora also plays an important role in Russia itself. So it's kind of all ties together very nicely especially considering the fact that everybody knows that Saudi Arabia and Qatar were the guys who were financing both ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So there you go. And that's the answer. Because Iran absolutely is viewed as the counterweight of the Sunni extremism. And in this case, they showed themselves to be fairly reliable allies with Russia. Yeah, let's shift focus to China. This is going to be like the big geopolitical topic of the 21st century, in my view. There has been the growing cooperation between Russia and China, which has caught a lot of people in the D.C. blob by surprise. And we should also remember that these two powers had a nasty breakup during the Sino-Soviet split in the late 1950s, which was ultimately fully realized once Richard Nixon normalized relations with China under his administration. But that has changed since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And now you're seeing this relationship intensify with the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, recently stressing that the Sino-Russian strategic cooperation has, air quotes, no end limits and no forbidden areas, end of air quote. Overall, how would you describe the relations between these two countries and what also explains the growing ties as well? First, 
it was inevitable. Again, as I said, neighbors. And Russia and China have the largest land border in the world between the two countries. I believe it's something like seven and a half thousand kilometers. So it's absolutely natural that, you know, these are neighbors. Then, of course, we have the issue of Chinese economic growth and China being not energy self-sufficient. And China understanding that, for example, emergency of the AUKUS or operations of the U.S. Navy, they can easily cut shipping lanes of communications of China in the Indian Ocean. And this is about one-third of energy and other resources China needs to survive. These are precisely Iranian oil, oil from the other parts of Arab East, and all kinds of resources from Africa. And we have to be very realistic here. China, in naval terms, doesn't have anything which can stop the United States Navy, and especially its remaining first world world-class submarine forces, in the case of war, from cutting those crucial shipping lanes of communication. China still doesn't have enough power to defend them, despite the fact that there was obviously development of the naval base and air base in Pakistan. But then again, so Russia is a natural ally and supplier of the not just energy resources, which is obvious. Pipelines, you cannot, United States cannot do anything about pipelines. These are not shipping lanes of communications. Also, United States cannot do anything about the Arctic route, which uh, in the pre, what is called BRI program of China, the Arctic shipping lanes of communications take a very important part. They are under the defense of the Russian Northern Fleet and Russian forces there in Arctic. So it's kind of almost natural. And as I don't remember, somebody recently made this wonderful observations. Russia and China may not stand shoulder to shoulder to each other, but they certainly stand back to back to each other, you know, and it's great description of the situation between China and Russia. And then, of course, there are natural gravitation of China towards many, many Russian technologies which China still doesn't possess. Unlike China, for example, many people don't understand. China doesn't have commercial airspace industry. They produced in their life like 40 versions of the DC-8, and they have one of the plants in Zhenzhen, I believe, for assembling the Airbus 320 or 320neo. That's about it. And that is why China is always near, you know, Russian airspace industry, be it combat aircraft or be it, of course, commercial ones. Enough to take a look at this very well proceeding CR-929, Russian-Chinese wide-body aircraft. So... And in this particular case, China and Russia are, can we say, allies? Yeah, I think so. You know, is there a military block there? Probably, to a degree. So, and when you understand that Russia is helping to build China its early warning system of the ballistic missile attack, there you go. You know, it's just pretty much self-explanatory. One of the more amusing forms of commentary that I'll read on some of these foreign policy journals that are filled with your typical who's who of doubters and haters is like the speculation that these people will drop about how this China-Russia partnership is not built to last and how China will eventually stab Russia in the back and try like colonize Siberia and parts of Eastern Russia. Is this this wishful thinking from a commentary class who can't handle like this new multipolar reality? Oh yeah, largely it is. And again, I am on the record. I wrote three books on that. 
Western commentary class is extremely illiterate. These are people without any serious education, without any serious life or other experiences in their life. And the only thing they know, they basically regurgitate the same points which are taught in Georgetown University or whatever. And as a result, you want to see what it is? Look at the U.S. diplomatic corps. It's a bottle of the jokes in Russia, for example. American diplomat is a euphemism for ignorant, uncultured person. <laughs> so that's what they are. I'm sorry. I mean, that's what it is. The Ivy League schools, in their humanities degrees, they produce ignoramuses. I'm, I, I'm sorry. That it is what it is. These are extremely uncultured people. They still think that New York is the cultural, you know, something of the world. It is not, you know. So it's like how to explain to them, you know. And then, yeah, they get to their those metropolises in Russia or even China, and their jaw drops when they deal with the civilization which are much older and much more mature than, for example, American Republic, you know, and they begin to feel the consternation and then they feel the deeply seated complex of inferiority. They are not as good. I'm sorry, they are not. And, you know, instead of learning, they, yeah, they, you have people who work for Washington Post or Fox News or whatever, who just basically make the stories up as they go, and they go. It was Mencken, you know, not only Mencken, Alexis de Tocqueville was writing about American garrulous patriotism, you know, in 1837, in the democracy of America. Then it was Mencken in 1920s writing about this very deep-seated fear of being not appreciated by the American elite. And we now see what American elite is. I mean, it's a really pathetic sight, honestly. And again, do not forget, the country was fed for five years the Russia Gate story, which no person with the half brain would believe. And now it's elected the guy who, for all my unacceptance of Biden's family and knowing that the guy is not good, but this is just basically abuse of the senile senior citizen. <laughs> but the country elected him. I'm sorry. And l- let me put it this way very clearly Leonid Brezhnev died at first age of 73. And everybody was laughing at that time at the senile, you know, geriatric police bureau. My God, look at the Congress and look at the Biden administration. These people are ancient. I'm not sure. Yeah, they're they're rotting corpses. (laughs) Yeah, they're walking corpses. Henry Kissinger for crying out loud. And then you have Nancy Pelosi and those are 80s, you know, people in their 80s. I don't think so. They have a clear thinking anymore, you know, so not to speak of Biden, who not always knows even what country he's in. But still, it's just, uh, it's sad. We can laugh whatever we want. But I said, again, as much as I hate Biden and his policies and everything, what is being done to him, it's an abuse. It's absolute abuse and humane treatment of the old person who is basically disabled. Uh, But yeah, somebody elected him. I didn't. Yeah, it's definitely the perfect representation for the state of like the U.S. if you really want to think about it like at this point and you see it firsthand in D.C. unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think this is a good place to wrap things up. Andre, I had a fantastic time chatting with you. What's the best place for my listeners to follow your content? Uh, It's my blog. I have obviously a YouTube channel. So in my blog is Reminiscence on the Future. It's Smoothie12 at blogspot.com. You can, I, I'm pretty sure you know where my blog is, do you? Yes, yes. So, yeah, just give them a hyperlink. And yeah, you can find me on the YouTube with the same Smoothie X12, which now stuck for me for the rest of my life. And 
I'm having issues explaining to people that it has nothing to do with the pornography industry. <laughs> it's like, uh, but so anyhow, you know, just give them links and yeah. yeah I will definitely be plugging that for sure. Thank you. <laughs> okay, my pleasure. Yeah, and to all my listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.